The big cheese. With the form baton at your hip, force your chest and hips forward. This dance honors the CEO, unsung hero standing proud on the backs of his employees. Now, as always, here with Lauren. Lauren, how are you doing? Hi, I am doing great today. Thank you. I've got my coffee. I am ready to go. I have my tea as well. Um, old heads will probably notice that I'm wearing a different knit cap on my head. Same sister-in-law made it, but she made me a different one because... Is I it still super itchy? Like, this one or is, is not. It... This one is okay. made with a much nicer yarn and it's not and it's also not as since it's designed for my head rather than my wife's head it's less tight so (laughs) i think that probably actually was the problem it wasn't that it was itchy it was just that it was squeezing my skull this is the last time you were just like look i really need to get these thoughts out of here my skull is squeezed (laughs) yeah yeah that was the problem was just getting all squeezed out and it's also less cold here in, in iowa so i'm not like dying in my basement however um today i wanted well we collectively wanted to continue an argument that you sort of put out into the world when you talked about Assassin's Creed. Um, so Lauren, if you want to briefly, what what is the problem with Assassin's Creed in its most recent manifestations? The problem with Assassin's Creed is that it is no longer Assassin's Creed. There you go. Uh, that, there we go. That's that's the end. Um, for those of you who didn't listen to the episode, I basically recounted about how from Assassin's Creed 1 and Assassin's Creed 2, or really what you could also see is the, the Ezio collection. It really followed one protagonist very strongly and kind of looked at the differences between reliving your ancestral like genes and also the meta of a true like um, Assassin's, like the Assassin's Creed, like that right, kind of religious cult-like following versus, right, the Templars, which were a different religious cult-like following and, like, the destruction of the planet, etc. And it definitely started to branch very quickly in its story because the way Ubisoft develops is they have each studio lead kind of a different game. But the Ezio collection really was founded and collectively from one single studio. I'm actually not sure which one. Now I feel terrible because I am an <laughs> Assassin's Creed fan. I should know this, but I bet there's a lot of you out there who also love Assassin's Creed and get, don't know. Get very angry in the comments about it. And yeah, get, get very, very angry at you too. And we'll all have and, an angry party. Yeah. <laughs> um, but more recently, since right the death of Desmond, spoilers, I guess. After <laughs> good, good job, Lauren. <laughs> good job. Uh, well, since basically in, in the new direction of Assassin's Creed, since Ubisoft's continued to say each studio owns a new area of that franchise, you get these really incredibly depth of gameplay mechanics. You get new combat, you get new innovation, you get more RPG like dialogue choices, but what you don't get is Assassin's Creed 
because no longer is there this strong story thoroughfed through that as what the uh i'm not even gonna say the french word the story through Histoire. the fiction of the world. well that would actually be crazy um, that sort of the way in which oh, okay. meta narrative would be more crazy Histoire is more like crazy. the what happens uh crazy is the how it happens and I think yes. your objection really is the how it happens because yes. without the meta narrative framing or less of it, because it's not that Valhalla doesn't have the meta frame, meta narrative framing. It's that it's kind of superfluous. It is. And how it is executed in the mod more recent titles, even as far back as Assassin's Creed three, right? How that was executed while it was done really well from a storytelling and kind of like a grounding perspective. And I think I actually Assassin's Creed 3 had the first time we brought these assassin mechanics into the modern world, which was super cool. Like you need to get yeah. through the metal detectors because you have metal on your body. So you got to find a way around without alerting the police. I was like, yes, give me this. And also, I guess now in modern times, I'm like, don't don't look at this too, uh, <laughs> too much. Uh, everyone else. So yeah, it's a, becoming a bit of a problem now that you have these like really long running storied franchises, even if they weren't begun all that long ago, where like the desire to have like, you know, blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster, or even just like a game that sells well enough to justify its extremely high production costs, then it seems like there's a lot more pressure put on studios to essentially brand different kinds of games with some like famous name. Um, I think fallout has run into this problem. I definitely think that Assassin's Creed has run into this problem. And the problem is, is that then, you know, when the, the studios that make these games oftentimes do try to branch out and do try to, you know, create something that's different, you know, just like take Assassin's Creed Valhalla and just call it a standalone game. They don't, find as much success precisely because they don't have the sort of like built in um, player base. However, I think there are examples of situations where you have franchises that have managed to escape this problem. And so I'm, well, if you want me to, I, I can, I can get into it, but if you, if you have anything else to say about Assassin's Creed, I, I want you to have your piece. I will say that I like I do agree that it's a player base thing. I think that's where the end of my argument kind of stood is that without the player base of Assassin's Creed, would Valhalla have gotten as much as excitement or renown as it did? And a lot of people really enjoyed yeah. it and were like, this is a great Assassin's Creed game. Um, knowing that it really wasn't about an assassin anymore. And I think that the answer is it wouldn't have because... Um, For Honor was a really great title, but it did try to do so many different things in that title. Um, yeah. It was also multiplayer, but it did not get as much renown despite being an amazing game and a very visceral kind of combat game where yeah. I really do see some similarities in For Honor and from and in Valhalla. So the, the reason why I thought of this is, so for those of you who don't know, um, I teach at um, Syracuse, well, I don't teach at Syracuse, I teach for Syracuse, but I teach at the city of Coralville in, in Iowa. Um, but uh, one, Semantics. Of the, yeah, one of the classes that I'm teaching right now is on Japanese popular culture. And our first unit is on video games. And so yesterday I was recording a video for my students 
on three games in sort of the broader Mario universe. The first game was the classic Super Mario Brothers, the original for the Nintendo. The second was Mario Kart 8, the most recent sort of iteration of the Mar- in the Mario Kart series. And the third game, which is the one that I really want to talk about, is WarioWare Smooth Moves, which was not a very... Which didn't sell very well as far as I know, but I think of the three is the most interesting. But sort of the broad point first, what the Mario franchise has done is created a space in which you can make wildly different games. And yet there is still a through line amongst all of them that sort of feels like, you know, the Mario world, so to speak. And the reason why is not just branding. I mean, branding is part of it, I think, in the same way that sort of with Assassin's Creed Valhalla, like branding does carry it somewhat, but that's not all of it. I mean, if Assassin's, if the actual gameplay of Valhalla were crap, people would probably say it's crap, but the gameplay actually is good. So like, it it can't just be one of those two things. So in the case of Mario, yeah, it's partially branding, but it's also partially the fact that all of the games, regardless of what they are, they all have essentially the same worldview. And when I say that, I mean, because of sort of Nintendo's long standing like design ethos or sort of design philosophy, if you will, it means that every single one of those games has the same approach to like, okay, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to make this too like abstract, like the way in which it constructs the relationship between the player and the world via the game. So between the player, the game and the world is always the same. It always has the same sort of like whimsical feel to it. Um, the design aesthetics are pretty much always the same. They always have like a fairly cartoony kind of bizarre feel to them. And the reason why I think the WarioWare games are most indicative of this is because they take that combination of absurdity and really like complicated, like depth of thought about control and gameplay to the extreme. So if you look at a game like WarioWare um, Smooth Moves, this was game for the, the Wii. It wasn't even the first Wario game. I think it was like the four, third or fourth. In this game, they take a control system, the Wiimote, that for its time was already a radical innovation. Like when the Wii f- was first um, demonstrated at E3, like the press were not about it at all. They thought it would fail wildly. Um, and in fact, many people even challenged the Nintendo representatives who were there and were like, yeah, but the hardware is worse than the PS3. Like, how can you possibly expect like anybody to want to play any of the games in this system? But Nintendo's design genius, and I really do think it's their genius, is that they've always thought about sort of a meshing between software and hardware. And so like if the hardware is doing a new thing, they recognize that you can't then just like port Grand Theft Auto onto it. If the hardware is doing a new thing, then the software also has to do a new thing. And so then in WarioWare Smooth Moves, where they're taking already that control mechanism that is a huge innovation and like taking it up to 11, they realize that then the game as well also has to take it up to 11 because that's the only way it's going to harmonize. And so WarioWare Smooth Moves in terms of its gameplay is like this assault of mini games. And it's not just a bunch of totally different mini games, but also each game that there's like 12 different ways that it sort of forces you to reconceptualize how you use the Wiimote. So, you know, holding the Wiimote like this or holding the Wiimote like a handlebar or holding the Wiimote like an umbrella or holding the Wiimote up against your face like a nose. Like it's all kind of ridiculous, but 
at the same time, by forcing you to do these bizarre things, it is also forcing you to reconceptualize your relationship as a human body to this physical thing that you have to manipulate and then how that interacts with the game that you see on your display. And because Nintendo as a company has had this longstanding design philosophy where it's about constantly reinventing your own products regardless of whether or not they succeed or fail because they've had some huge failures too but their successes are also huge the wii despite the fact that it was bagged on by the almost the entirety of the press outsold the ps3 and the xbox combined and not by a little but by a lot and so yeah, yeah. and i definitely think that the technology of the device is something that a hundred percent influences and innovates game developers. And it's something that a lot of you out there might be thinking, well, Lauren, we have new hardware and technology right now, currently coming from Microsoft, right? We have yeah. the new um, accessibility controller and we have that cool new DualSense PlayStation 5 controller. Why aren't we seeing more of these other video game companies innovate off of those types of hardware? Well, the answer is very simple. And Nicholas actually just told you it's the philosophy of Nintendo in their internal Nintendo studios. In order to be a Nintendo developer, you have a seal of approval. You have to go through Nintendo training. Yeah. You very quite honestly can't just like throw something on there. That's why when the Nintendo Switch came out and indie developers started saying, we want to put our games on Switch, Nintendo actually laxed their policies extensively. Mm -hmm. Almost, you know what, I'll even say ostentatiously, they got rid of their clauses. Because back in time, when you were on the Nintendo, the NES, so the Nintendo Entertainment System, or especially right when the Wii came out, you yeah. had to have, you are an official Nintendo developer. And so every game that came out for the Wii, because I also had Wii, um, if it had come out for a different, if it had come out before, right, and it was a port, that studio had to then completely redo their design mechanics to fit within the Wii. One of the biggest, uh, not, the, not the biggest franchise, it's not actually a franchise, um, but one of the biggest titles that I remember playing amazing on the Wii and something that was incredibly engaging was Okami. Okami was something that came out for, um, I think, Sony, I think the PlayStation first. Yeah. And then was ported to the Wii, but because of this official Nintendo seal of quality, yeah, it was stating that Okami plays on the Wii and makes use of all of the hardware. You really yeah. haven't seen this in other game manufacturers such as Sony and Microsoft uh, for a variety of reasons, which we'll go into at later episodes. But for now, just know that Nintendo's hardware and Nintendo's internal development studios, those go hand in hand. But yeah. other developers, right, aren't. And no. yes, recently you are seeing this change with now the new Sony studios and the new reimagining of Lucasfilm's games. So yeah. we should be exciting to see more of this, but how has it happened in the past? Yeah, it's but it's it's been a long-standing process for Nintendo. In fact, Nintendo was nearly as a company which was originally a um they made playing cards. Um they were nearly bankrupt in the early 60s. And the then president of the company was like, okay, how are we going to pull ourselves out of this hole? Um, and he made the 
now in hindsight, genius decision to go whole hog into R&D. Like Nintendo has an entire research and development division that is massive. Uh, used to be known as R&D1 back in the classic days, and but R&D1 has been folded back into the, the company as a whole. And R&D1, especially under the direction of a guy named Yokoi Gunpei, um, is responsible for pretty much every famous Nintendo thing you know from the 80s and 90s. In fact, Go Yokoi personally, alongside Miyamoto, in fact, Miyamoto worked for R&D1, was hired by Yokoi personally. And so, like, this is them bucking the trend, like, going back to the late 60s. And, that, like, that foundation was established all the way back then. I know I'm sounding a bit like a, you know, a Nintendo fanboy here, but as someone who is a scholar, like, you know, seeing all of sort of, like, the historical depth and all of these things that, like, play into it, like, that really appeals to me because, you know, unfortunate, it's unfortunate that with a lot of modern game studios, there's almost this, like, mercenary mentality. It's like, we're working on this game, and then once this game ships and it's a success or it's a failure, we kind of all move on. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is I think that in game development as well as a professional game developer, it really does feel like you can get very deadline focused. Yeah. And that's what it's the mercenary mentality is that you're working for a demo, you're working towards a demo, you're working towards a green light. And if you never get that green light, there's there's just doesn't exist anymore. And also because technology is increasing so fast, we aren't really developing towards the technology anymore. We're developing towards the consumer. Yeah. Right. And I think that the big question when we look at Assassin's Creed is how has something still been able to achieve something so, or so much success so well, so frequently, but also then kind of stagnate in its development in terms of actually innovating on maybe the meta narrative or innovating on the technology, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, there is one button to do Eagle Vision. There is yeah. one button to do... Um, like assass uh, assassination, right? Yeah. And over time, the controls have changed from buttons to triggers to now you have to press the stick. And that's kind of the the, inno the innovation of the series is that these yeah. controls that were absolutely needed in Assassin's Creed 1, now they're no longer needed in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. So they put them on a control you don't use. Like that's the extent of our technological advancement, I would say in in the Assassin's Creed franchise, looking at it from an outsider, um, once again, all opinions are my own. I have do I do not work for Ubisoft. Yes, I know Ubisoft developers. No, they don't tell me anything. Um, <laughs> right? Like no. this is all my I, this is all my own. Okay, but let's let, let's go back to a point you made because I think it's an important one. Is that you do have evolving technology, even when you're talking about you know the Playstations, even when you're talking about Xboxes, like the control technology has still evolved. Like if you look at a yes. PS1 controller and you look at a PS5 controller, they have the same basic shape. They have the sort of more or less the same buttons. I mean, the PlayStation 5 one is going to have a lot more, but then it also has like, I mean, it's a, it is a very different kind of thing. But the problem is, and I think you, you pointed to it directly, is that sort of instead of thinking about like, meeting where the technology is so so this is what i was saying earlier like the reason why WarioWare, despite not selling very well is a brilliant game is because it sees where the technology is and it meets it in the gameplay whereas so, so that these two things are pointing towards each other the problem is is that so when you're talking about say like cross-platform titles especially like 
they they almost can't have that because the the technology but so you know the the consoles that you have available to you, you know you so like your three major consoles your your xboxes your playstations and then whatever the hell nintendo is making in any given moment like they're usually three different things and so if you're a third-party developer and you're trying to think about like well how do i create a game that sort of works more or less for all three of those it's not really going to do very well for any of them and so then it, you can't be focused on the technology and using it, its affordances you're now thinking far more about like okay well then how do i get this thing to appeal to as broad a base of players as possible and so that's precisely what you were saying earlier is like it then becomes player focused and so then if you're working in a franchise it's like okay we're making an assassin's creed game or let's say we're making a um salmon max game <laughs> where we're going to reinvigorate the salmon max series. i cannot believe that we just did salmon max i have all like 40 episodes or whatever of salmon max i made this we're gonna, not 40. we're gonna like we're, we're gonna re we're gonna reinvent telltale through lucas arts and we're, we're gonna bring back the salmon max games oh so man salmon max but it's like han and chewy <laughs> yes oh my yeah, gosh yeah, exactly I exactly okay so so all right we, we've already established that so we're, we're we're on a secret project to reinvigorate salmon max so then it's like okay well if you made a Salmon Max game for the, the for the Switch, then you would have to think about like, well, the Switch is portable, and the Switch also has like motion controls. The Switch has all of these things. But then, if you're thinking about, say, like, you know, for the PlayStation, well, the PlayStation has much much better hardware than the Switch does. So you could have like, you know, more textures. You could have better textures. You could have like, you know, larger environments. And so, but the thing is, those are different games. Right. And then also think about how the Nintendo Switch has motion control and the PlayStation 5 does have dual sense, but that's very different. Right. That's yeah. for a controller. Now, let's say you're going to use the Cyberpunk 2077 problem, which is you're developing for players who have really, really high end PCs. Well, now you're segmenting your market on all the other consoles that are going to be in this giant list of my fingers for all you video users out there. And it's something that now, well, now you're not even developing for your PC market or your console yeah. market. You're developing for like a subset of a subset of consumers. Yeah. And to be fair, most, um, actually, I don't know if that's true anymore. I was going to say most European consumers are on the PC market. I, I don't, actually I don't, don't know I don't if that's know. true anymore. I, I think, think historically you would have been correct, but I, I don't think know Historically, I would have been correct because the piece, the need for a computer as an economical device was a lot higher for all families and businesses to have a computer. Also just but the that a console was just a luxury because it was purely an entertainment device. Well, also because the European Union was simultaneously more and less integrated. So one of the, the problems is that like, you know, consoles tend to take the North American market for granted and are usually thinking primarily about the North American market, even when they have a substantial presence in say like Asia or in Europe. Yes, and I cannot wait until we go into that episode in a couple of weeks here. Yeah, that's that that's, is going to be a whole exciting. That's a whole other <laughs> episode. So um, that is an amazing rant. Um, but to bring it kind of back to the Nintendo philosophy of yeah. game development, right, and hardware development, it's kind of interesting to see how will the future of these game development companies, say like Sony, right, yeah. who does actually have a lot of studios that are Sony exclusive studios, yeah. how are they going to develop right for the hardware? And then also kind of contrarily, how are they developing with the software that they have? Because we've actually spent a lot of this episode talking about WarioWare and the hardware, yeah. but I kind of am interested about talking about um, Mario or even say Kingdom Hearts yeah. when their software 
which means the editor or the engine and the tools that the developers had to them changed on them. Kingdom Hearts yeah. 3 is the biggest example because they yeah. were using Square's internal engine yeah. uh, and they had a 10-year development cycle and halfway through, about five years in, so imagine you made all your assets, you made all of your game, now it's just all into polish, you just really want to make that great, and suddenly it's like, surprise, you need to use a new engine. But don't worry, this new <laughs> engine is great, you can just export uh, or import, excuse me, all your assets directly into it. Nope. It's going to work perfectly. <laughs> There's this thing called a level blueprint. You can nope. just throw all your logic in there. It's going to be great. Okay, five years later, Kingdom Hearts 3 officially graduates. Um, like, it's it's just one of those things where, how does that software, right, Nicholas? How do you think that software is influencing the games, especially right with this Nintendo philosophy? Yeah, so, the, so okay, so there, there's a couple of important points. Um, so in my, so going back to arguments that I've made in my class, you guys are getting some freebies here. You didn't even have to pay $70,000 a year to go to Syracuse to get this juicy information. This is a free one. I don't get paid very much of that money, by the way, just in case you guys were wondering. Um, so, so one of the arguments that I made in my class is that Japanese game studios, to me at least, from what I've read, are far more internationally minded. Like I, to an extent, and so, the, and it's weird because Japanese companies otherwise tend to be extremely insular, especially Japanese media companies, but Japanese game companies are the exact opposite. And as a result, then, you know, so, so think about Mario. Who is Mario? He's this weird, chubby Italian guy with a big nose who, like, in his first conception in Donkey Kong, was this dude who, like, was climbing up, like, uh, scaffolding, and he had a hammer, and he was trying to get this lady who kind of looked like olive oil while fighting a gorilla. Like, what is Japanese about that? Like, what, what what strikes you as distinctly Japanese about that, other than maybe it's a little bizarre? And then in the following game, the Mario Brothers game, where they sort of started to develop the quote-unquote Mario lore, <laughs> such as it is, um, now you've got a brother Luigi, another like total Guido stereotype, and they're in the, the so they're supposed like literally the game like conceptualizes itself as being in the sewers of New York. And they've got to stop. They've got to clear out the sewers of all these like turtle-like creatures, which would later become the um, the Koopas in the Super Mario Brothers games. And then the next game after that is Super Mario Brothers for the NES, where now you have the Mushroom Kingdom, and it's even kind of a bit trippy. Like you know, you as Mario, as little Mario, you get a mushroom, and then you get really big and strong, and then you find a flower, and you can shoot fireballs. And if you find a star, then you are invincible. It's yeah. And then what's weird is that like, though, it all like, so now that we've like completely tripped you out for all your childhood nostalgia, yep. um, <laughs> what's really weird is that it all kind of works. And something that, you know, you did mention is that Mario was introduced in a totally different game. It was introduced in Gonky Kong. Yeah. But why did people say gravitate towards Mario, right? Why did he become super fa uh, famous, right? Uh, versus like Donkey Kong. Like no one's like, man, I can't wait for Donkey Kong Country. I mean, some people are, I will say. But you're not like, oh, I really want to be Donkey Kong. No. And is it because like, right, Mario is, I mean, he's human. So well, because theoretically, it's, theoretically so it's, he's it's a human. The so it's the opposite of the argument that we had been making with regard to RPGs. So this is an interesting counterpoint. So with RPGs, we were making the argument that part of the problem is what is the way in which you identify with your avatar in the game? What Nintendo has created is games in which 
it doesn't matter if you identify with them. It's actually irrelevant. And in fact, my, my students are probably going to disagree with me when, the, when we finally discuss it. But the argument that I made in the video that I just recorded for them is that actually Nintendo doesn't have a target demographic. And I mean yeah. that. No, not, I, not by age, not by nationality. Yes, yep, 100%. They don't have one. No, they don't have one. And I think it all comes down to the fact that Mario is making titles for people who would enjoy those titles. And it's weird to say something like that because as a game developer, you are developing games that you would play, but not necessarily. I'm developing a game right now that quite honestly, like I would love to play, but it might just be out of my skill range. Or I am developing a game that, you know, I have developed games that I was like, man, I would hate to play this level. Like, right. And that just happens because you're making a huge game. You're making small games. It doesn't matter what type of game you're making. Yeah. But when you say you're making a game that you would want to play, like I could pick up a Mario controller and I can play Mario Kart. I could play Mario. Uh, Mario Super Kart World. is a very good example of this because Mario Kart has a lot of depth in it. In fact, you can get very, very skilled at that game, but everything in the game is perfectly legible. What I, yes. mean, what I mean by that is that my four-year-old daughter, who was mostly unable to read, was able to play Mario Kart. Didn't need a tutorial, didn't need anything, but through merely playing the game, how the items work, how the controls worked, like because there were these like very clear, simple, like one-to-one -one correlations. So there's legibility. That's the really important aspect. That's one really important aspect of Mario Kart. The other really important aspect is that everything in the game feels powerful. So like when you use an item, it does something really obvious and really cool. And yep. it doesn't have to be complicated. It like literally each item does one thing and exactly one thing. Well, some of them do, you can do multiple things. With well, no, it. you can actually, there is, the, that's where the depth comes in, right? Yeah. You're actually hinting at that because yeah. one item does one cool thing, right? Like the banana peel. If for those of you who haven't played Mario Kart, just like in slapstick comedy, you throw a banana peel, ah, they trip, they fall, right? Yeah. You can do the same thing in Mario Kart, which is a racing game in scare quotes. And you race against people and you actually have, right? These like weapons, like the banana peel. Yeah. That you can leave behind you and someone will slip up. You, right? seeing that banana peel now need to either avoid it, which changes your tactics, or you just, you know, hammer through it because you don't see it. You're new yeah. to the game. You're just me playing Mario Kart and you're just like, whatever. But I think that that's kind of what it gets at is Mario Kart is incredibly legible. And when we say legible, we mean, you know what a banana peel does, even if you don't know what it does in the context of the game. And yeah. I think that's really interesting that we're bringing up the point about how it's counter to the role-playing game where you want to identify with your hero, but yeah. the Mario games, which is weird to say because it's Mario isn't a genre, but we're kind of treating it like it is. Well, it is a franchise and, and I will- It's a franchise, I want yeah. You to, I want you to make your point, but I actually will argue that there's a through line, but please go ahead. I was going to say we're not treating Mario as a genre because it's not a genre, but I was actually going to say that maybe it is in a way and yeah. that the Mario games have become this new medium that regardless of what type of game it is, you will not see a Mario RPG because that is contrary to what Mario as a staple and as a genre is not. It yeah. is not a game which needs you to identify with its protagonist. It is a game in which in a way, you are the protagonist in which you identify with because you are playing any of those characters within that world and you are actually yeah. the mechanics 
in which you tell that. Yes. And that is part of the through line because you're not identifying. This is something that we kind this is an airy fairy idea that we presented last time, which is that like, what are you identifying with in a, in a video game? Sometimes it's not necessarily the characters. Sometimes you're identifying with the gameplay. And the through line through all of the Mario games, regardless of whether or not you're talking about like Super Mario Brothers or Mario Kart. Actually, let's look at the items for for you know a second. So what does an item do in a Mario game? An item in a Mario game fundamentally transforms gameplay. In other words, in the original Super Mario Brothers, when you're the little dude, like you can jump on top of, of, your, of your enemies, and that's kind of about it. You acquire the, the mushroom to make you big, suddenly you can change the environment. You can break blocks. You can do that as a little dude. And then you acquire the fire flower. You can attack enemies from afar. In addition to that, you interact with each individual enemy differently. You have to play the game differently depending upon the enemy that you encounter. And, that is, the, and that is the same thing yes. in Mario Kart. And it's the same thing in WarioWare. You have to approach each moment in the game differently and you engage with it. And now this is where I finally get to bring up Legend of Zelda because Legend <laughs> of Zelda is exactly the same in that it is item-driven design because Link's complete kits change depending on which weapons and which items he uses. And you have to use, and depending on which items you use, and also in some titles, you have to use certain items yes. in order to defeat different enemies and yes. different bosses. And so this Mario genre is this Nintendo item-driven design yes. where the fundamental kits that you give to the player character change the interactions of yes. that player character with others. And in some cases, you have the choice to choose those interactions, which is what's really appealing about those games. Wow, I think we've come to... Well, that's it. This... I'm going to drop them. I can't drop my mic. Drop, it's drop, I I'm not mic. dropping this mic. I can't, I can't afford another one. <laughs> no, I, I can't figure, afford another figure, one. Figure, you you figure got me it. this one. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So guys, thank you very much for listening this week. We've officially dropped the mic on that point. Pretend that it just ended there. But as always, we will see you again here soon.